0: once again we welcome you to moving forward with young voices and here's a familiar voice we're happy to welcome nolan gray back to the show nolan you have a lot of uh, emphasis in uh, city planning and i follow you closely on twitter because i like to see what you have to say but fill in some of the gaps about uh, what what else should our audience know about you
1: yeah well thanks so much for having me back bro. Um, I'm a professional city planner. I was a city planner in New York City, Uh, and right now I'm completing a Ph.D. in city planning at UCLA. But as you mentioned, I do a lot of writing around the web. Uh, I mainly write about land use regulations, uh, how we plan cities, uh, and how all of this intersects with the cost of housing, which is something we're going to get into today.
2: Yeah,
0: actually, I'm looking at your article in The Atlantic, and just, you know, the headline grabbed me, Stop Fetishizing Old Homes. And I mean I, I, you have to you'll have to bear with me here but Nolan when we talk about old homes and people coming in and fixing them up is this what is referred to as gentrifying a neighborhood
1: <laughs> Yeah well gentrifying is is at once a little more narrow and a little uh, broader so gentrification is when you have a historically low income or maybe majority minority uh, neighborhood And the demographics of that neighborhood are changing such that it's getting wealthier or, or maybe more white residents are moving in. Um, so in some urban context, uh, yeah, that can be gentrification, right? In many cases, what's happening in a place like New York or Los Angeles, because young professionals and young families are priced out of maybe the neighborhoods they want to live in, they move into lower income areas and buy homes there and there are concerns about that stuff you know like increasing housing costs potentially displacing current residents changing the character of neighborhoods um but that's a yeah that's a really big issue and it's a, it's a really big point of debate among urban scholars
0: okay well i pre- i appreciate the clarification it it may or may not refer to what we're about to talk about which is the the idea of of uh, people taking old homes and uh putting tons of money into them you make the case in this article that uh, actually when it, when it comes to uh to, to homes, whatever your aesthetic preferences, new construction is better on almost every conceivable measure. now, first, I want to ask you what is it about the old homes? Is it just the the uh, historic uh, sentimentality that makes people want to take an old home and you know and fix it up?
1: well you know I think at the outset it's worth uh, giving the devil its due. I think it 's actually great that a lot of people choose to improve old homes or restore old homes uh, as a hobby or or as as a cause uh, I think It's there's no question to my mind that there are a lot of buildings that we should preserve. But, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write the piece is that you go to any planning hearing to maybe build new housing in an existing urban area. Or you go to any planning hearing for a project that will involve maybe demolishing an old building and building something newer and nicer. And you get this incredible rhetoric about the need to preserve all old housing and the moral superiority of old housing. And, you know, I wanted to kind of counterbalance this. I mean, If you look at the U.S. housing stock, median age of a U.S. home is now 39 years. That's up 20 percent over the last decade. The U.S. home is old and it's getting much older very quickly. Part of the reason this is happening is that we're actually not building new housing. And so, you know, I think as we can get into, I wanted to remind everyone, hey, you know, new housing is actually nice and building it keeps housing affordable and it keeps people in communities that they want to stay in uh, and it keeps the quality of life high and the standard of uh, the cost of living low. And these are really important things that I think we let fall by the wayside.
0: Now, I think you and I may have had this conversation once a long time ago, but why is it that uh, that it's so difficult to build new houses? Obviously, there's there's housing crises in many places across the country. Why is it that it's so difficult to 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 build new homes?
1: Yeah, I mean this is I think one of the biggest issues of our time. The housing stock is getting older, not you know because the homes that exist are getting older right uh, they're i mean they're 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 incrementally getting older, but what's really happening here is that we're not allowing new stock to come online, and this is really extreme in some of the really high cost cities in America, so places like Los angeles, uh, the Bay Area. Uh, Metro Boston, Metro New York. Uh, And what's going on, as you kind of hint at, is you have very strict regulations that make it really hard to build in a lot of these places. So if you actually look at the amount of housing that a city like Los Angeles or a city like New York is permitting on a per capita basis, they're allowing less housing to be built than cities that are actively shrinking, places like Baltimore. Um, And so this is not a matter of people not wanting to move to Los Angeles and New York. It's a matter of strict regulations that make it very hard and very expensive to build housing. Uh, these are things like zoning regulations. These are things like uh, rules on on requiring uh, large parking garages or capping the height of apartment buildings or making it really hard to just build maybe a townhouse uh, in an area where that's what a starter home would look like. You know, here in the L.A. context, we have this notion. This gets back to the fetishization of old homes. We have this notion that a starter home looks like you know a 1960s ranch ranch style home on a five thousand square foot lot, and that did look like a starter home when it was built, but today that home is one two three million dollars depending on what neighborhood it 's in. A starter home in two thousand and twenty two might look like a townhouse it might look like a home on a small you know on a two thousand square foot lot. it might look like a small two or three bedroom condo that gets a family into the neighborhood they want to live in
0: Talk to me about some of the some of the not so great parts of uh, of the older homes, I mean, hey, a lot of them were built with character. they were built sturdy, but it sounds like um, technology has has advanced in in construction and zoning. Um, what are some of the downsides about some of those uh, those older homes, the quaint ones
1: you know i 've been renting uh, my entire <clears throat> adult life, excuse me, and every time you tour one of these like really old, really awful apartments the uh, the realtor or the management company or the landlord, God bless them, will just constantly keep saying, Oh, look at the character. Look at the char- look at the character of this old faucet. And you're like, well the faucet's leaking. Like, ah, but yeah, look at the ironwork. Uh you know, look at the metalwork of the uh of the faucet here. And it's so I mean, yeah, you know, I try to emphasize this in this piece that of course there are beautiful old homes that we need to preserve, but we also need to be realistic about the the average old home in America. And it has certain issues, right? Number one is pretty big fire risk. Uh, Fire safety standards have improved quite a lot. New housing virtually never burns down. Uh, Old housing frequently does in many cases because of bad electrical wiring. I I mean, you know, or issues like lead paint, which can be poisoning to children or lead pipes. Uh, These are significant issues. Issues like mold. Uh, Older homes in many cases didn't have quality mold remediation. Um, And then there's a whole host of others. We can talk about things like energy efficiency and accessibility Uh, but you know, one of the funny things about this piece is I keep getting these replies We're like, no, no, no. I live in a, I live in a beautifully restored old home and it, you know, I removed all the lead paint and I added in fire insulation and I added in, you know, I got all the mold out. Uh, and now it has none of these issues. And I'm like, okay, well, how much do you spend on it? And I'm like, oh, you know, about a quarter of a million dollars. It's like, okay. I mean, (laughs) that's, that's fine. I'm glad you chose to do that, but that's not a viable solution to building abundant and affordable housing.
0: So, is, is the biggest holdup the, the regulatory holdup, or is it to, that the market hasn't yet caught on to what, it's at, what it would be asking for if it understood these things?
1: That's a really great question. I, I think it's, to some extent, a little mix of both, right? Um, you know, to start, with, to start with the market, you know, in many cases, you have developers who have been used to building single-family homes, subdivisions on the periphery for decades. That's maybe that's what their grandpa did. That's what their dad did. That's what they do. Uh, you know, on one level, absolutely. On another level in a city like maybe San Jose, California, or, you know, I'm talking about, um, California, but you're in Idaho, you know, these issues are coming to you all as well. Um, Idaho, Montana, honestly, when I go out and talk to legislators, a lot of the ones I'm talking to now are in places like Montana. They're in places like Idaho. They're in places like Utah where they're like, Hey, you know, We have uh, large growing families. And also we have a lot of people moving here because the quality of life is really high. What can we do? And, you know, those places, yeah, you do have to have a stable of developers who can build these projects, but also open up your zoning books, open up your zoning codes. You know, what are some of the rules that might be standing in the way of taking that old 5,000 square foot or uh, 5,000 square foot lot home and turning it into two or three townhouses, like what you have in a city like Houston, which doesn't have zoning. You know, what are some of the rules that might be blocking taking that old strip mall that's been sitting half-vacant for the past decade and turning that into maybe a small apartment building uh, with maybe some homes on the property. These are things that po- policymakers can and need to be doing now. I would say the best time uh, to, to, uh, to reform your zoning code is before you have a housing crisis. And in many U.S. cities, that ship has already sailed, but it's not – you know, it's potentially not too late to make some reforms that'll keep some of these cities affordable uh, in places like the Sun Belt and the Mountain West. You know, it really hit me that this crisis had gone national. I'm—we were talking before we started recording. I'm originally from Lexington, Kentucky, a pretty affordable place. Uh, you know, Lexington's a, a very healthy, growing, prosperous city in a state that has a lot of issues. A lot of people are moving there, uh, including refugees from Ohio. God bless them. Uh, and. You know, I was talking to my parents recently and they were like, oh, there was a line around the block of people making cash offers 20 percent above list price uh, for a house on our, you know, on our street. And, you know, of course, on one level, they were excited about it. Right. But on another level, I'm like, wow, okay, this housing shortage crisis is going national.
0: Okay, we are unfortunately up against the clock here. But for people who want to follow up on this article, we'll have a link in the show notes. But if they'd like to follow up on on more of your writing, I know you're a a pretty, uh, pretty accomplished writer, where can they find your work?
1: Yeah, well, the best place to, to stay on top of what I'm doing is to follow me on Twitter. I'm at M as in Matthew, Nolan, N-O-L-A-N, Gray, G-R-A-Y. Uh, I blog on City Lab, The Atlantic, all over. And you can catch my stuff, of course, through Young Voices as well.
0: Okay, thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to talking with you again. Thanks so much. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Eric Peterson back to the show. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's with the Pelican Institute. And probably a couple other hats that you wear. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself, Eric?
3: Yeah, uh,
4: so I work at the Pelican Institute down in New Orleans. Um, We're really excited for a lot of the future that cryptocurrency, Bitcoin mining, and all that potentially has for the state of Louisiana. And it is Mardi Gras season down here. So if you're looking for somewhere to go in the next month, uh, come on down. The King Cake is still delicious.
0: Very nice. Now, I'm I'm paying a lot closer attention to blockchain, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency than I used to. And uh, it, that doesn't mean I'm knowledgeable about it. It just means I, I'm seeing some, some interesting trends. And I'm looking at an article that you wrote for TechDirt.com about how the future of sports can be changed by NFTs, virtual reality and DAOs. And I guess the first thing we need to do is maybe uh, spell out some of the lexicon here so people know. When we say NFT, what does that refer to?
4: Yeah, an NFT just means a non-fungible token. If you've seen it in the news, it it sort of just looks like a picture of – some cartoon drawing, and you're probably very confused about why it's it's selling for a million and a half dollars. But NFTs actually have a real use value in terms of it's on the blockchain and it can convey ownership of something. Uh, For example, Brian, I'm an owner of Packer stock. I have it hanging right at my desk above uh, where we're talking right now. Um, And it's got a number on it and says, you know, it's owned by Eric Peterson. This gives me a few advantages, right? I can go buy uh, specific Packers merchandise. I can go to an owner's meeting that's held um, in the summer every year. Now, I'm just suggesting that something like Packers stock could be represented as an NFT. They wouldn't have to mail it to me. And when I wanted to prove that it was a shareholder in the Packers or whatever other uh, sports franchise was selling stock like this, that an NFT might be a way to do so.
0: Interesting. I mean, that's okay. That's thinking outside the box and, and good for whoever in the Packers organization came up with that idea. By the way, congratulations on your uh, part ownership. Talk, Thank to, you. talk to me about uh, virtual reality. What is that doing to the future of sports?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think sports are getting really uh, interested in the in the future of virtual reality. Um, the, the New York uh, Nets recently, or the Brooklyn Nets, should I say, recently uh, purchased some property in the metaverse. Uh, Facebook, as, as your listeners might know, is rebranded as Meta. Um, the goal there is for people to sort of interact in virtual reality. Um, I, I think this all sorts of goes together, which the way that we interact with sports, you um, You know, it's football season. You know, we're about to go for the Super Bowl. Uh, People are going to be having parties. Absolutely. Um, But you can imagine like last year that people weren't having Super Bowl parties because of COVID. um, Or if I wanted to watch the game with my brother who lives up in Wisconsin, um, the only way for us to really do that is. I suppose we could get on zoom or, you know, call each other on the phone, but we're just looking at a screen together. Um, Something like virtual reality, right. Has the ability to bring us together to watch the game together. Um, Or even, you know, you might say that there might be a group of people who don't necessarily know each other, but want this sort of sports bar experience of going and watching a basketball game with their, their favorite friends and doing that um, rather than just sitting at home and doing it on their television. I think that's a really interesting uh, opportunity And again, I think how some overlap with NFTs, again, your NFT could be a ticket to watching a game in virtual reality with a special group of people, maybe with somebody who knows more about the team and will give you better color commentary than you might get from uh, whoever they've hired to do it.
0: I hate to admit it, but I kind of feel my age when I hear talk about, uh, you know, the metaverse and I hear the talk about virtual reality. On the one hand, I'm curious because I think, oh, that sounds really cool. On the other hand, and this is this is probably the process of me becoming my dad. This kind of stuff scares me a little bit. I mean, what's the upside? Are there any downsides to uh, this this shift towards greater um, involvement in life in the metaverse?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think there's always trade-offs with any technology, right? I don't think any of us would get rid of our smartphones, but um, I think we definitely all feel a little bit of angst when you don't answer a text message or you don't know what's going on. Um, on the other hand, I mean, the potential to bring people together, I think, is great. Uh, I mean, I own Pelican season tickets, and I love going to the game with people. Uh, but you might imagine there are people in northern Louisiana or Mississippi who maybe get to go to a game once or twice a year. And so their ability to watch the game with their friends is you know, texting them during the game or maybe just sitting on the couch and watching television. But sports is something that we like to do together. It's one of the last things that we have that, really bring people together. And I think for folks that can't be there physically, um, the opportunity to be there virtually with people who care about the same things they do is really powerful um, and something I don't think sports has completely tapped into or figured out yet. Um, so I was just writing a, a, about a ways I think it might be able to happen and, you know, things that I'm excited for.
0: Okay. And then uh, I, I wanted to touch on the, uh, the DAO, uh, which you said was a decentralized, uh, decentralized. autonomous uh, Organization. Now, That's right. decentralization, I think, is key to everything I hear about blockchain. That's the term that keeps coming up. What, uh, what are some examples, maybe, of, of what a DAO would look like?
4: yeah um i I think the best example uh was a constitution dao they tried to uh, purchase one of the last 13 physical copies of the constitution they were able to raise over 40 million dollars to do so uh, on the ethereum blockchain and were able to put in a bid Um, why would somebody donate to this well if you donated uh, a certain amount of ethereum um, you had a vote for what happened to that copy of the constitution uh, regular people might not have an opportunity to purchase something like that or make a decision. So it was an opportunity for them to do so it was something they felt all very strongly about. Uh, when I look at it, the future of sports, um, I think the, there's a real opportunity for sports leagues and sports teams to be run by DAOs. Um, the Packers I get are, are not quite the example, but again, they have stock ownership. Uh, they don't have a singular owner. I think that's a real advantage for them, right? Teams that have really bad owners like the Washington Redskins, right? You talk to a Washington Redskins, fan, the number one thing they want is a change in ownership. Um, a DAO might provide another opportunity to do so and you know, vote on things like who the general manager should be. Maybe should the starting quarterback play? Do we need to, you know, sack the manager? These are all sort of things that I I think are possible um, through these new organizations. And when you think that sports leagues are supported by fans anyway, it's only fan involvement that keeps them going. The the product is, you know, selling entertainment to the fans. Um, It starts to ask the question about why we need billionaire owners to be profiting off the team um, rather than the fans who are more invested in them anyways.
0: OK, now that makes sense. I could see the fans being more invested, but I have to ask, do you run into the trouble of uh, too many chiefs, not enough Indians? Uh, you know, will it can it become cumbersome when you have that many people that have input? Or is, is this is this a more democratic way to, to handle decisions?
4: Yeah, I don't think we figured out that question yet. Um, you know, it's certainly something that's speculative. Um, I think we're going to see the most movement on this with startup sports leagues. Um, you know, things like volleyball, uh, women's athletics. Um, but I think there's also a really good opportunity in, um, soccer, um, uh, uh, especially, um, foreign, like the premier league, or not the premier league, but, um, soccer, uh, in England has a tiered system, right? So they have a lot of teams that are, uh, basically community run volunteer teams anyways. And so some opportunities for folks to put some money into these teams, Uh, to invest in the players, to invest in stadiums Uh, could be done for relatively cheaply, but I think uh, test out some of these organizations. Uh, Gemini, who is one of the largest crypto companies just purchased um, an English soccer club. And they're with the goal of taking them to the premier league. So um, I I think there's some real opportunities to run things differently, try some things out. I'm sure not all of it will work Um, just as the, you know, the early days of sports, not all the teams or leagues uh, were successful.
0: Okay. Well, you know, sports fans are definitely invested in, in the teams that they love and, and in the sports that they love. I guess it was natural that to the digital world would become, you know, a part of, of that experience. Anything to keep an eye on as we move forward? I mean, these are three very promising areas. Are, are there any things on your wish list that you'd like to see also come about as a result of, you know, this, this advance in technology?
4: Yeah, I think the NFT st- space in sports has been moving along for a while. I'm really interested to see if they will start to do more other than just collectibles. Um, collectibles and sports go back a long period of time, but I think there's more potential there. I would say the thing I'm most excited about is the potential partnerships with virtual reality companies, really bringing fans to sports, getting out of the sort of watching sports on a screen, um, being able to watch it with other people, I think is going to be the real advance that sports, hand, that sports fans have um, over the next few years and something that I would uh, certainly keep my eye on.
0: Okay. We'll get, we again are talking with Eric Peterson. He is a Young Voices contributor and lives in New Orleans. And, Eric, where can people follow you?
4: Uh, they can follow me up on my Twitter, Eric underscore Peterson underscore. Uh, they can find my writing at Young Voices and at the Pelican dot, uh, org.
0: All right. All the best to you. Let's talk again soon.
4: Thanks, Brian. Let's go, Bengals.
0: welcome back to moving forward with young voices we are happy to welcome bill Bowcutt, who joins us from uh, great britain how are you today
5: very good Brian. how are you
0: Fantastic. This is our first time talking, Bill, so I'm going to ask you to take a moment here and introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, Tell us about yourself. Make up some facts if you have to, but we'd like to know a little bit more about you.
5: (laughs) Sure. Uh, So, obviously, I contributed to Young Voices UK, um, where often, at the moment, appearing as a panelist and a contributor... Uh, to television and radio stations like GB news and talk radio uh but my primary job what i do full-time is a political reporter for a commentary news website called reaction uh so my job primarily is to cover what's happening in westminster revolving around 10 downing street and the prime minister uh, and also uh, a bit of international relations as well
0: well fortunately for you the folks there at Downing Street, 10 Downing Street are keeping uh, you with plenty of things to talk about. I'm actually looking at an article that you had written about uh, the prime minister being on a precipice over a party that was held uh, in violation of some of the, the COVID rules. Bring us up to speed. What, what happened in this event?
5: So in short, Downing Street had multiple parties during the coronavirus pandemic uh, when at the time it was against the law. Um, so at the moment, the police, the London Metropolitan Police are now investigating at least 12, uh, different parties or events that occurred, um, during lockdown. Uh, and as a result of that, as mentioned, they're being investigated by the, the police it's an actual criminal investigation, but also Boris Johnson, as you mentioned, is a sort of precipice in the sense that. Um, he's under immense pressure to resign as prime minister, not just uh, from the opposition, like the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats and so on, but also conservative MPs.
0: Wow. Now, how much of that uh, that pressure to resign is a result of the party? And how much of it may be attached to other things for which you know he may be unpopular to some?
5: That's definitely a case. I think at the moment we're in such a cosm where Part, part the partygate scandal is kind of dominating the, the the political news agenda in the westminster village as we call um you're having various different polls that are coming out saying that the prime minister is dishonest so that he should quit but there has been uh, at least in the last year 8 or 18 months or so um a lot of distrust with Johnson's government over the way he's handled the coronavirus pandemic. We've had over 150,000 deaths. We've also had uh, other scandals roving around um, P- 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 and also uh, there's a big scandal about members of parliament having second jobs outside of their, their paid work to be elected representatives uh, and also uh, failing to deliver on uh, the commitments that. The Conservative Party promised in their 2019 manifesto, particularly on this big issue called levelling up, which is to um, make the country more equal, both socially and also economically.
0: Interesting. You know, I, I have seen similar scrutiny being applied, um, at least in, in terms of following covid rules or breaking covid rules, as the case may be, to a number of uh, political leaders here in the USA. and And there's outrage and there are people who, you know, have have really called them out on, you know, failure to mask or, you know, flouting rules and so forth. But I don't think I've ever seen anything approaching the, the kind of, of pressure that it appears as being um, placed on, on um, Mr. Johnson at this time.
5: That's definitely the case because Britain had some of the strictest lockdown rules in all of Europe. Um, uh, you know, people weren't even allowed to go to the pub. They were forced to stay at home and uh, maximum fines could have been handed out as big as £10,000 if you were to have hold, held an illicit a gathering with with dozens of people, um, but I think the big controversy is is that uh, other ministers, uh, particularly the the health the then health secretary Matt Hancock, uh, who basically was health secretary throughout uh, most of the pandemic before Freedom Day, uh, he resigned after he was um, exposed by the Sun newspaper as having uh, an affair. Um, with one of his IDs, uh breaking lockdown rules, as mentioned, and he resigned. And people are asking, well, Boris Johnson has allegedly attended, you know, several other events in his home in Downing Street, and so is his staff, and he's presided over it. So why isn't he resigning over the matter? And another big controversy is, is that if he had found to have misled um, the House of Commons, uh, House of Parliament over the matter, um, then then that's a resignation matter. So really, it's just a case of having to wait as to what the verdict is with this police official police investigation, which might decide his um, his fate as prime minister.
0: Now, I have to ask. The, I understand that oftentimes people within political circles um, they will uh, they'll take their outrage public um, in part sometimes because it's it's a chance to get in front of cameras and you know to 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 make a bold stand you know for something uh, that feels. Very safe. Does that outrage extend to the general public? Or what What do you hear, you know, from from the common citizen regarding this?
5: There's definitely been what we call cut through, um, not just within you know the news agenda, but also in popular culture as well. Uh, so. Uh just yesterday there was this report internal report uh published by um a civil servant called sue gray who whose responsibility or whose job was to uh look into the the different parties that had been happening uh in downing street and also in Whitehall throughout the pandemic uh, and she's become a bit like this mini celebrity, a bit of a nobody who's you know part of common language in many ways and as i mentioned. Uh, the polls overwhelmingly show that uh, the Prime Minister should resign. Also, the Conservatives have now felt massively behind the Labour Party. And you've got to remember that the Conservatives, you know, l- less than two years ago, got the biggest majority since Margaret Thatcher you know, defeating, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, a far left socialist um, and having such a size of ACC majority in the House of Commons to now be in a situation where he's I've never really seen a crisis like this, at least with any other prime minister. I didn't really see it with Gordon Brown or even with David Cameron or even Theresa May, who had a pretty rough time negotiating brexit to no avail so yeah it's really i think that the general public understand their fury um and particularly you know bereaved families or those who had to make huge sacrifices over the last two years and uh and but now it's often down to the job of you know mps ultimately if boris or, or if boris decides to resign that's um that he gets the boot
0: is it possible that uh, if uh, Boris Johnson were to resign, that that would be the first of uh, more resignations that would follow? I'm I'm just trying to gauge how how outraged is the public over some of the things that they've had to bear for the last couple of years? And is it likely more heads will roll?
5: Uh, I think so. so. One of the things uh, that Boris Johnson is trying to do to kind of divert attention away from uh, his own responsibility, is to um, essentially poll his inner circle so his key advisors as well as his key members of staff within Downing Street so one person who might be getting the cut or has been uh, rumored to get the cut is uh, Martin Reynolds who's the Prime minister's uh, principal private secretary um, who there was the ITV news had um, published an article where they found an email sent by Reynolds to more than a hundred uh, government staff asking if they wanted to go for a drinks parlor in the Downing Street garden. And many people were thinking that uh, it's him that should be going, not Boris Johnson, because he was made not aware potentially of what was going on. Um, at, at, but I think what we will see also a cut through is, is that come in May, we've got local elections for councils and also for local mayors. And it's widely predicted that the Conservative Party are going to be losing quite a few councillors over this crisis. And really, it's now a decision of MPs as to when do they decide to fill in letters of no confidence in the prime minister that would ultimately see him you know, uh, leave the top job, or is it going to be a case that Boris Johnson resigns if it's going to inflict more damage on the Conservative Party, uh, if if it's going to hinder, you know, their their electoral success, and ultimately lead the Labour Party back into government.
0: Bill, we have about one minute left. I just want to ask one quick question in in closing. Um, the attitude of of the public there in in the u k is is it likely that the kind of lockdowns and and very stringent rules that were imposed will ever return are people are people going to put up with it again
5: uh, I think the, the thing with the British public is that we have a, a good sense of collective responsibility um, and while I personally haven 't been uh, a fan at all of many of the lockdown measures. Um, people have accepted it because they feel it's needed to save lives and protect the NHS. Um, but I think right now, I can't really see Britain going back into lockdown unless there was a new super, super variant. I mean, there was quite a lot of worry with the Omicron variant when it first hit Britain, when it was first emerged in, uh, in South Africa. Um, but it turned out to be more milder cases did rise but it didn't really put a strain so much on the health service because it also came in line with the winter with flu um, and other strains within the national health service so i can't really see any more measures coming to place and even if it did you have the question whether the public would tolerate it
0: all right we are talking with bill balkett he is a young voices uk contributor and bill great to make your acquaintance i look forward to visiting with you again Things of it. We welcome you to our final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Happy to wear to welcome Gary Frankel back to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Gary, tell us a few of the other hats that you wear.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Aside from being with Young Voices, of course, I'm currently studying uh, education policy and management at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. And I also do some reporting for Chalkboard Review and some blogging for Redefine Ed.
0: And you have been a busy camper on Twitter, I know, because I follow you, and I, I'm seeing you are staying plenty busy. I also had the opportunity, uh, I guess it's been a couple of weeks now, um, I, I read your article on uh, the American Institute for Economic Research on a master of education or a master of foe social justice. Now, this is a great article. Set the stage for us. Uh, um, we're not talking about, uh, you know, just any old school either. Tell, what What school is at stake here?
3: Yeah, it's pretty much just any school, although the worst offender is definitely Harvard. Amazing. You know, when you think of Harvard's graduate school of education, you think, oh my goodness, these are gonna be the best and brightest of our teachers who are gonna really contribute some new insights and understandings for American children. But what you end up having are a bunch of ridiculous classes. I cited a couple of examples in the article. Um one Harvard class is solely it's a politics class about Native Americans. It has nothing to do with education. It makes no claims of having anything to do with education, and yet it's filed under the Graduate School of Education. And then another teacher education class within that college talks about how certain body movements while you're teaching are actually colonizing. So I I, take it that's a bad thing. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Your your colonizing body movements are extremely harmful. So I guess pointing is racist or something.
0: <laughs> wow. I mean, look, I know there's a lot of stuff that could be considered microaggressions and, and whatnot, but it seems like that list never stops expanding. And uh, this is being taken seriously, though. I mean, you know, like you say, Harvard Graduate School, This is that's about as serious uh, an educational institution as you're going to find. How do... How do classes or trends like this find their way into higher education?
3: Yeah, it's it's a very slow process because what happens at one college eventually moves to another college and then it just slowly grows and grows and grows. But a department is always going to reflect the research specialization of the people who work for that department. And what you end up finding is the Heritage Foundation did a really, really good study on this relatively recently is that many, many colleges of education throughout the United States have research specializations that are wholly focused around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And of course, it's not a problem to have a couple of professors or a certain school here here and there that prioritizes DEI in their research. But when you have Half the country essentially researching this one topic, a whole lot of expertise and history and knowledge and education gets lost. And who are the ones that are eventually going to be hurt by that? Kids.
0: Oh, exactly. I mean, I've heard this said relating to, for instance, exercise or, or personal fitness. What you focus on grows. I think there might be a corollary to, to education, though, particularly if you're focusing on um, colonialization or injustice or um, inequity, it seems like rather than solving it, it it tends to to grow. Like they find the more they look, the more they try to teach about it, the more they discover.
3: Well, when all you have is a hammer, everything is a gnat. So (laughs) so it's becoming a problem because take, for example, my mother, who was a public school teacher for a long time. She went through teacher education um, in the early 90s. And even as recently as then, Her education was wholly focused on what are the best research-backed practices for classroom instruction. And, you know, there is tidbits of diversity, equity, and inclusion in there because it is important and it is something that should be talked about. But it's not something that should dominate colleges of education so thoroughly that it becomes almost a religion. Because in the end, what you're teaching is almost like a cult-like religion as opposed to classroom management and practices that we know work and that we know benefit kids. It's, it's disturbing.
0: Now, again, ostensibly, though, wokeness, for, for lack of a better description, is, is supposed to be solving problems. It's supposed to be you know uh, rectifying inequities and injustices. But what are some of the philosophical or psychological harms that, that seem to crop up in the wake of wokeness?
3: Well, probably the most severe impact is just the attack on white people in general, um, especially white straight men. And while most of that dialogue is centered and, you know, at a high school or university level, you get tidbits of that in elementary and middle schools as well. There was a a book that um, Christopher Ruffo broke um, several months back. Where dozens of districts around the country, elementary schools, were teaching out of this children's book that referred to whiteness as a pact with the devil. What is a six year old white child going to think when they read something like that, especially if they've come from a religious household of some kind? They're going to be convinced that they're going to hell. And that's just not healthy for children to be thinking about. That's not something that they should be reading. And A lot of this is descended from what's happening in colleges of education around the country, especially at so-called elite institutions of higher learning like Harvard.
0: Well, as you pointed out, this isn't something that happened overnight. It's something that has been gradually taking hold and and spreading and growing. Talk to me about some of the the possible reforms or solutions that could either slow its roll or stop it.
3: Yeah. Well, as far as what parents can do, and you know, this is a drum that I've beat a lot, but it's still important. School choice is a big help because if you have the latitude and the financial means and the legal backing to pick a school for your child that reflects the values that you have and the values that you wish to be instilled on in your child, then what happens in college educa- colleges of education. Isn't quite as important because if you want to send your kid to an academy that reflects those values, you can. But if you want to send your kid to a classical school or, you know, some type of other value based school, then that's your prerogative and you can do whatever you want. Everybody's happy Um, on a university level. It's obviously a lot harder. Um, Any type of reform is going to be really, really slow. But people who are interested in this space should get involved. They should try and go into academia and construct a competing vision for what's dominating colleges of education right now. Because the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. But nobody is taking those steps right now. It might not work. It may take 50 years. We might all be dead by the time it works. But if you, people start taking that first step and whether it's creating new universities like the University of Austin or going into existing universities and making different arguments, somebody has to take that step and something needs to happen in order for there to be change.
0: OK, I got to ask you the most loaded question I'm going to ask today. Um, what about the prospect of separating school and state? Because it seems like these things become an issue and they become a power struggle. I'm thinking particularly like the school boards where parents have showed up angry and suddenly, you know, there's allegations of domestic terror and whatnot. But if you take the state out of it, the, the coercion comes out of it and you know, the free market kicks in. Is is, is that even feasible in, in your view?
3: You know, there's definitely a principle based philosophical argument for that perspective, but if any kind of reform to that extent would take place, it would take decades, if not centuries. Some form of public education, although it's come in many shapes, forms, and sizes, has been with the United States since the founding. So even if we get the best, most ambitious school choice policy in the world, which personally I would absolutely love, the a good chunk of American children would still be attending traditional public schools. So any kind of responsible policymaking We'll probably have to recognize on a pragmatic level that for the foreseeable future, there are going to be a lot of kids who are going to public schools and we need to help them, too. Okay,
0: so here's one final follow up question. We've got about two minutes left here. Um, What are things that parents can do to prepare their kids as they go into whether it's public school or into higher education? They're going to be facing some of this this wokeness. What are things that we can do to to make sure that they're not being taught like that six year old? You know, if you're white, you're going to hell.
3: Yeah. Well, teach your kids what it means to be American and what it means to be a citizen. Read to your kids, read to them the great works, whatever type of reading that instills Good values and virtue into American children will help them prepare themselves for what it is they're going to face within whatever education system they choose to enroll themselves in.
0: I know people tend to overlook the classics, but until I was introduced to them, and I think I was in my 30s, maybe maybe even approaching 40 before I really got serious about the classics. There's a lot to be said for how it helps a person's thinking and their, their character develop, even though, you know, to a lot of people, it's just an old book. But it's an old book with yeah, some no, really the
2: good.
3: Classics may not teach you what to think, but they'll teach you how to think, and that's infinitely more important.
0: All right. Gary Frankel is a graduate student at Texas A and M's University Bush School of Government and Public Service. He's a contributor to Young Voices. Where can people follow your writing work?
3: Yeah, I am definitely most active on Twitter. You can follow me at Frank Bulgarian. It's literally my last name and then my first.
0: Okay. And uh, I do follow him on Twitter. And, folks, he'll keep you thinking. Gary, great to catch up with you once again.
3: You too, Brian. Thank you for having me.